Hi, I am Dr. Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is Sounds Strategic, our new podcast that aims to showcase the analytic talent of our institute, the sparkly folks whose independent data collection and analysis on policy-relevant projects um, defines the work that we do here as an institute and define the culture of the institute. Our purpose in doing it is to hopefully encourage broad interest in the research and the data that they produce. And we are starting off the podcast series with the big sparkly lights of the program, one of whom, Virginia Kamali, is with me today. Welcome, Virginia. Thank you, Corey. It's a pleasure to be here. We are asking all of the folks we are going to interview on the podcast to answer the same set of questions so that our listeners have a pattern and we have a way to talk about your work and its policy relevance. So start us off by talking about uh, an issue that your research covers Oh, I'm sorry. I see I'm already failing in my task, which is I have not said nearly enough about talented Virginia Kamali. She is the Senior Fellow in Conflict, Security, and Development. She uh, has not only studied these issues, has worked on them in such a breathtakingly wide span of research. Everything from Ebola and healthcare crises to uh, drug production in Afghanistan to urbanization. And she is not only a first-rate scholar of these issues, but her vision for how to take the armed conflict survey that the International Institute for Strategic Studies publishes and make it dramatically more relevant and a, a better data source for researchers in government, business, and academia has, uh, has caused... Dr. John Chipman, the director of this institute, to make her the director of our project on conflict, security, and development. So we will get to that later, but let's first talk about how the work that you do is in the news just now. Well, thank you, Corey. Well, as you know, through the Armed Conflict Survey and also our Armed Conflict Database, we uh, regularly, constantly monitor developments in active conflicts around the world, but we also keep an eye on new and emerging or potential um, conflicts. So in the autumn of 2018, we added a new conflict uh, in our uh, armed conflict database, and that is in Cameroon. Uh, Cameroon has been in the news uh, quite a lot in the course of 2018 because of mounting violence in the Anglophone uh, regions of Cameroon, where there is a very strong uh, separatist uh, drive and movement. And also, Cameroon is being in the news a lot because of a rather controversial presidential election, election where President uh, Bia ended up being uh, re-elected for the uh, for the seventh uh, time. The seventh time? Yes, President Bia has been in power a very long time. 
and has been uh, one of those uh, leaders that we've seen quite a few of across sub-Saharan Africa in recent years who have um, either amended the constitutions or uh, exert quite a lot of significant uh, pressure on, um, on the electorate to secure their uh, distension of, their, uh, of, of the power. And uh, this has been met with a growing uh, number of protests that often have uh, become uh, have become violent. So, uh, if the '80s and '90s were the period of hopefulness about the expansion of democracy across the continent of Africa, does it feel to you like a pall has come over? That is, that authoritarian leaders in many African countries begin to use the trappings of democracy in a way to lock in their power? Or is that too broad a generalization? I think it's a, it's a mixed picture if we look around the continent because it is fair to say that democratic values and processes are becoming more uh, more established. And it was very encouraging uh, when uh, during the um, presidential elections in, in the Gambia uh, last year when the uh, incumbent uh, refused to, um, to concede defeat, there was an immediate and very powerful reaction on the part of ECOWAS, the uh, regional economic bloc, uh, in uh, in West Africa, that put a pressure on him to to leave and ensure that the newly elected uh, president could actually uh, could actually take over. And so, what could have become a serious and violent crisis was actually uh, contained. And it was, I think, a very powerful message that uh, regional leaders sent to uh, future uh, presidents who were unwilling to uh, to step down. Uh, that actually that would not be uh, tolerated. So there are some um, reasons to be very uh, hopeful. We've seen more uh, peaceful uh, political transitions uh, in recent years, but unfortunately we still see some some leaders who have not yet accepted you know, the changing world. Mm-hmm. How did you get interested in the work of conflict, stability, and development in Virginia? Well, since a young age, was I was interested in security and defense uh, matters, and uh, and by that I mean probably you were actually an intern in this organization, or a yes. junior researcher working on the military balance. Yes, right? yes, so exactly. So you're the great success story that upward mobility is possible in this institution. Well, I've been very fortunate, and and I spent over twelve years with this organization, and I've been able to to grow and uh, and explore new uh, new issues that perhaps I wasn't so interested in when I was at university at the time I was all uh, interested in missile defense and the debate between ballistics versus cruise missiles, which is the greatest threat. Uh, I never really thought much of Africa. And uh, ironically, that's actually my main area of focus, and it has been for several years now. And uh, I'm very much drawn into um, multidisciplinary um, issues and, and, and responses to some of these challenges that we see. So I'm still very much interested in the defense and security dimension, but also uh, I look at the humanitarian impact of some of the, the challenges that we study, uh, how we can involve a broader range of actors to develop sustainable uh, solutions to, uh, to conflicts and, and other forms of instability. So we organize events or write papers that bring in all those components. We have the 
military, we have the law enforcement, but we also have the human rights and NGO and civil society. And also, increasingly, in our strand of work on urban security, we bring on board urbanists and, um, and architects who can certainly play a huge role alongside the private sector in helping to rebuild uh, post-conflict cities and also to, uh, to create more uh, inclusive and sustainable uh, cities in developing countries. It is one of my favorite things about your program, not just that you are multidisciplinary and you create a program that draws on many different strains of uh, academic and intellectual expertise, but also the way you are training the reflexes excuse me, training the reflexes of the rest of us to be more inclusive of those things in our own work. It's great modeling of the behavior that spreads through the culture of an institution. I really admire that about what you're doing. Let's talk about your favorite book, though. Well, it's very hard to pinpoint one single uh, book, but a few years back, I read this book called The Locust Effect, and it's written by two authors, Gary Hagen, and Victor Boutros. So the book is uh, is related to, to what we do here at IISS, but actually brings in a different angle, and that's actually what I usually uh, like, to, uh, like to read. So basically the book is based on extensive fieldwork across multiple uh, developing countries and really studies and documents how for millions and millions of uh, poor people, the top priority or their top concern is the everyday common violence. So rape, forced labor, illegal detention, uh, land expropriation, uh, police uh, violence, and so on. And so they, they travel uh, around you know, Kenya, India, various places in Latin America, and document the, the failure of the uh, public justice systems in those countries and how uh, the poorest of society uh, have no, oftentimes have no way to stand up for their rights. So they are exploited uh, in the illegal, uh, in illegal economies uh, and they are expropriated from their land and things just so basic such as, you know, going, leaving your home and going to the toilet because many of these people don't have in, uh, toilets in house is a huge challenge because women get routinely raped on their ways from from home to the toilets. These are very basic things, but of course have a tremendous impact on uh, people's everyday uh, lives. So this low level. Uh, violence, which is, of course, it's not the conflict that I study every day, but it's still still something that has such a huge impact on on, on millions and millions of people, and is underpinned by huge um, huge impunity. So, in many of these countries, unfortunately, if you have money and power, you can just buy your way out of jail or not end up in jail at all. So, there is this growing, of course, resentment. Um, and sense of impotence among uh, millions of people in lots of these societies. Uh, so that's really interesting, and suggests too that it it uh, the rule of law isn't established well, right? Because if people can buy their way out yeah. a, out to impunity, then the law isn't functioning for everyone, and it then undercuts the sense of governance being fair as well. So it's a corrosive effect in addition to the immediate justice effects of it. 
What's the title mean, the locus effect? Well, basically, uh, is a way of saying that this low-level, common, you know, everyday violence is this uh, plague that kind of eats up societies mm-hmm. like locust descending on a village or on a field. Excellent. Okay. Thank you for that. So my next question is my favorite of the questions that I always ask people. What's the conventional wisdom in your field that's wrong? Yeah, that's a very uh, interesting one. Uh, Oftentimes, we talk about ungoverned spaces. And I take issues with that phrase because I don't think there is anything of that sort, if a place is ungoverned by the state, is governed by someone else. It's very hard to find uh, areas of the world where there is a complete vacuum of authority. It might not be a state authority, it might not be the conventional one, Hmm. but you always or almost always find how non-state armed groups insert themselves and take advantage of the state's inability to... uh, to govern uh, and to provide services in certain uh, in certain localities, and so and this also is linked to another um, possibly mistaken piece of conventional wisdom that uh, makes people believe that when a place is run by non-state armed groups, and by which I mean um, jihadists or separatists or organized criminals in case of some slums, is total anarchy and chaos. And that is actually not the case uh, for two reasons. In the case of some of these ideologically driven groups, such as Daesh, for instance, we know how they did actually uh, try and succeeded to a certain extent uh, for a certain period of time to establish a state to provide services to create their own form of uh, justice uh, and courts, uh, for instance. And other groups in other parts of the world have attempted similar uh, things to uh, varying degrees of success. But also in the case of criminals, especially organized criminals, they are business people. So, of course, they thrive in a place where they can influence government, that they can co-opt government officials and the police uh, and other uh, people or in positions of authority. But they don't want total chaos because they have to run a business. They still want some uh, basic services to function so that their supply chain is not too badly affected. Okay, I love that. You're right. It not only... The notion of ungoverned spaces not only is intellectually untrue... Uh, but it also leads to bad policy recommendations, right? If you think there's a vacuum, all you have to do is fill it. You don't have to displace an already entrenched force or pattern of behavior. And it makes me think about interviews I have read with Afghans where, you know, we're surprised that they will uh, allow and even support Taliban rule in parts of the country. And I have sometimes read interviews where Afghans say, yeah, but at least there's the rule of law, Yeah, right? Like, it may be harsh, it may be repressive, but it is at least predictable. Um, And and so I love it that that's your conventional Mm -hmm. wisdom that's wrong. Uh, It will shape how I think about this issue. Okay, your favorite work you've ever done. The thing you're proudest of, the thing you wish uh, more people knew about that you have worked on. Okay. Well, I'll have two. Uh, one, uh, woman, I well, like 
Well, the, the number one, really, the thing I'm most proud of is the team the, that I currently have. And the team has grown a lot in the course of 2018 and uh, is, is very diverse, uh, is very international, and it brings together people from uh, different backgrounds with plenty of field research and, and experience in international organizations. And, uh, and they are extremely... Um, smart and energetic and I feel very fortunate every day I go to work so I think my biggest achievement is to has been putting that team together. You are indeed fortunate but I would remind you that Thomas Edison the inventor of the light bulb famously said that he found that he that luck appeared often dressed in overalls and looks a lot like work <laughs> uh, right because you created that team it didn't drop out of the sky to you you cultivated it you recruited it and you nurture the work that they do and I am super proud of the leadership you have in creating the team that is diverse in so many ways and that models what is for me a fundamental truth which is that the argument for diversity among the many good arguments for diversity the one that strikes me always most is that every successful problem-solving team is diverse because it gives you different turns at the kaleidoscope. It gives you different expertise. People don't assume fundamental things because they have to they have to prove them to each other. And your team does that beautifully. What's the second thing okay. you're most proud of? So the second thing is a book I wrote on uh, Boko Haram, the insurgent group in uh, in Nigeria, and. Uh, I conducted field research in northern Nigeria for it, and I really uh, stretched myself in trying to, to understand uh, the history uh, of um, Islam uh, in, in West Africa and, um, and really going into the detail of, of that and also trying to see how similar violent groups that had exploited uh, religious uh, ideology had emerged, evolved, and had been dealt with in the past. So I really tried to uh, understand the developments that, when I started doing the research, weren't very uh, well understood. There weren't many uh, publications on it out. There weren't any books uh, published uh, at that time on, on the subject, and really trying to uh, to place the, the the emergence and the uh, development of Boko Haram into a broader historical, but also socio-economical uh, context. So I was very um, excited with the work, and I also was uh, excited with the way it was it was received. And I was very fortunate to be able to present it at the United Nations in New York. And I was very nervous when I heard that um, the uh, Nigerian permanent representative to the UN was attending uh, uh, on the day. And, um, and it was a great relief when she actually thanked me for, for the work they'd done because it helped shed some, um, some light on, 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 on the group. And, um, and in spite of the fact that I had at times in my writing been quite critical of the military response uh, to, uh, to the insurgency, I think the fact that I was doing it from a purely objective, um, fact-based, data-driven uh, perspective with no hidden political agenda, uh, it, it was very clear. And so all my uh, feedback, even the most critical one, was, uh, was welcome. 
Yes, it's a terrific book. I commend it. I learned a ton from it. Others will as well. My last question, favorite data visualization? Okay, so there are lots of sparkly things out there uh, online. <laughs> and um, uh, the World Economic Forum has been very prolific in, uh, in this arena. And they have this uh, rather extraordinary uh, knowledge uh, tool that has plenty of um, visualization tools built in it. And it's called Mapping Global Transformation. So basically, they've taken lots of different forces that have identified as the driving forces for um, transformational change across regions, industries, and various global issues. And they've displayed, visually obviously, uh, how they connect to all these different um, forces across multiple regions. So they have over 120 of these different topics and that are all interconnected. So for instance, uh, if you pick one, sustainable development, to, to mention one that is close to, to me, that's obviously is linked to responsible innovation, which in turn is linked to cities and urbanization, which are linked to urban governance, and that's linked to corruption, and corruption is linked to illicit, illicit financial flows. And I could go on and on and on, because these are all like small solar systems with the, with the key issue in the middle and all these um, uh, planets uh, surrounding uh, the sun that are connected to other parallel solar systems. So it's very interesting because of it, you can see all this, uh, these um, links and interconnections. And it's also complemented by uh, quite a lot of text that you can uh, visualize or, or hide, whatever, whatever you prefer, but it gives you the opportunity, if you want to, to have a more in-depth uh, read or, uh, around this, uh, this issue. So I thought it's a very clever way of uh, connecting all these issues across multiple uh, disciplines. I do notice that very often we are siloed in our approach to these kinds of problems and the interactions give enormous multiplier effects to, to inputs. Um, and so I love it that this shows how these things affect each other and amplify or diminish various effects. Virginia Connolly, thank you so much for taking time to do this. Thank you for the excellent work you do at the IISS, and thank you for the leadership you model and extol uh, for this institution. Thank you. This has been great fun. Mm -hmm.